The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. You don't want it. You don't need it. But you're going to get it anyway. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Here's Kevin. The show is always presented by Window Nation. Call them at 866-90-NATION or go to windownation.com. Mention my name, Kevin Sheehan. I promise you they will take really good care of you. Two notes to open up the show. This from Dell. Dell wrote me, Kevin, so you think RG3 is a narcissist? Tell me something I don't know. But the part you missed on is that he's actually mean on Twitter. He took an unnecessary shot at Jay Gruden and then brought along all of his followers for a hit parade on Jay. Gruden was just minding his own business, watching a game and making a comment about it from an expert perspective. Um, Yeah. I don't know about the mean part, Dell. Of course he's a narcissist, you know, and narcissists never take accountability uh, because it's never their fault. We, you know, saw that with the owner, Dan Snyder, for 25 years. It was always someone else's fault. But but the part about him being mean, I've never sensed Griffin as a mean person, and I don't think he was intending to be mean. I think his intentions are always to bring attention to himself, which he did. You know, I also w- looked at some of the follow-up to that back and forth, he took a lot of, you know, hits coming back at him, uh, people kind of supporting Jay. And, you know, typically those are the people that followed the day-to-day like we all did and know the real story, that it wasn't just Jay. It was Mike and Kyle. It was Sean. And then it was in Cleveland and then in Baltimore. You know, bottom line is after the Shanahans schemed up a rookie of the year sensation, uh, and then to be fair to him, he got hurt. You know, without that scheme and without without the ability to protect himself, and it was probably after 2012 a compromised version of himself, physically maybe, um, but he just wasn't any good. He couldn't play the position. Um, it went well beyond the one year, 2014, when he was Jay's starter for a period of time. Um, the second note comes from Will, uh, Will tweeted, been a big fan. You've never disappointed bringing up the things that sometimes your guests don't want to talk about. Expecting you to ask Gruden about the RG3 Twitter beef when he's on with you this week. Will, thank you. And guess what? Jay Gruden is on the show today. 
Uh, he will join me in the next two segments, and I will ask him about the RG3 back and forth. Uh, I'm having him on today, not because of that, just so everybody understands. I can't have him on on Friday because I won't have a show tomorrow or Friday. I'm heading out of town to be with family for my father-in-law's funeral up in New Jersey. So no show tomorrow or Friday. And I reached out to Jay and asked him if he would come on today in lieu of Friday. Uh, And we'll talk, by the way, mostly football. We'll talk um, about uh, the Adam Peters hire, the importance of the coach that they hire and the relationship that they need to have with the general manager. And we'll talk a lot of NFL. And I'll see if he's ready to give us his lock of the week, which didn't win um, in wildcard weekend. He gave out Philadelphia. I think he wanted to give out the Rams, but he was going back and forth and he gave out Philadelphia. So he's now, what does that make him? 11-6 and six on this show with his lock of the week. But Jay will be on with me today. And yes, Will, I will bring up the RG3 Twitter um, conversation. Uh, I want to start real quickly with this. So John Keim wrote a story on ESPN.com that just hit moments ago. I'm glad I was uh, looking for uh, any news-related um, uh, stories uh, as it relates to the things that we're interested in. And he wrote a story on Ron Rivera. John is apparently the first to have a conversation on the record with Ron Rivera since he got fired. And there are a couple of interesting things in this story, including that Ron wants to coach again, even if it's as a defensive coordinator. It's certainly not going to be as a head coach, not in this hiring cycle. I'm not sure if it'll be in any hiring cycle in the future. But he's okay even if he comes back as a defensive coordinator. And he said that he's had conversations with some people and some teams and is waiting to see what happens over the next week or so with coaching vacancies. Here's a quote. I have several opportunities right now. I just want to make sure it's the right one. Closed quote. That's surprising to me. For those that have been listening to me talk about Ron Rivera's sort of state of mind for the last year, I really contemplated and talked about the idea that Ron had kind of checked out a year ago, that he understood that this was a lame duck season and that he was ready to move on with the next chapter of his life. Now, he's a competitor, and I didn't want to diminish his competitive spirit because he's always been a tough kind of alpha male competitor. But after all that he had been through in Washington, and then with this upcoming season looking like a lame duck season, it just wouldn't have surprised me if you know, perhaps he had, you know, decided this was going to be it unless somehow, you know, they ended up having a a really good team, which obviously didn't happen. So I really thought and felt all season long that this was it for Ron Rivera. But no, uh, he told John that he wants to coach again, even if it's as a defensive coordinator. Now, what's interesting about that is that it's not very typical that somebody coaches for as long as Ron Rivera coached in Carolina and in Washington, and then they go back and take a lesser position on a staff. In fact, like th- uh, there were a couple of names that popped into my mind. Like If he were to go back 
and let's say take a legitimate, like on a staff, I'm not talking about an advisor or a consultant, you know, to a team. I'm talking about if he takes a job on a, as, a, as a defensive coordinator or as a linebackers coach on a staff. But, uh, you know, I don't know if he would actually, you know, go to that level. Um, it, it's rare. I believe it's rare. But a couple of names popped into my mind. Ken Wisenhunt was the first one. Because I remember feeling about Ken Wisenhunt that this guy, who, by the way, played for the Skins – um, for a few years in the late 80s and the early 90s uh, and was sort of a Joe Gibbs kind of disciple in some way, shape, or form. Um, I just remember the opportunities that he took after being fired. He was the head coach in Arizona for six seasons, took the Cardinals to a Super Bowl, the Super Bowl that they lost to the Steelers in, and then was fired and became the offensive coordinator for the Chargers for a year, and then got another head coaching job with the Titans for two years, or it was actually a year and a half, got fired again, and then once again became the offensive coordinator for the Chargers for four seasons. And that was the the name that popped into my mind. He coached, you know, six years in Arizona, a year and a half in Tennessee, and after both times being fired, he took lesser jobs. I mean, that's a lifer. You know, that's a guy that really loves it. Even today, and I I went to to look at what he was currently doing, um, after the Chargers uh, gig ended at the end of the 2019 season, he was an offensive, uh, offensive analyst for James Franklin at Penn State for a couple of years, and he was a special assistant this past season to Nick Saban at Alabama. Who knew? I didn't. And then out of curiosity, I just took a few minutes to try to find other examples like Wisenhunt um, and perhaps like Ron Rivera if he ends up uh, being a defensive coordinator. Dan Quinn, six years in Atlanta, a Super Bowl trip, a playoff trip after that, uh, and then he became the defensive coordinator in Dallas. Um, you know, a, a sizable run as a head coach with some – you know, level of success. You know, there, there are plenty of guys that were just coaches for a year or two or three and then ended up becoming coordinators or something lesser uh, than head coach in other places. But I was kind of looking for the Wisenhunt, you know, Ron Rivera comps. Uh, Quinn would be one. Mike Martz would be another. You know, Martz was the head coach uh, in St. Louis with the Rams for six seasons following Vermeil. Uh, and then ended up being an offensive coordinator in Detroit, San Francisco, and Chicago uh, for a seven-year period after uh, being let go by the Rams. Uh, Gary Kubiak's got an interesting story, but his really was more health-related. You know, he was the head coach in Houston for eight years. Kyle Shanahan was his offensive coordinator for part of that time. Uh, And then he left coaching because of health-related issues, uh, came back uh, and was the offensive coordinator for the Baltimore Ravens for a year, uh, and then became the head coach of Denver for two seasons. Remember, winning a Super Bowl. Uh, with Peyton Manning 
a Super Bowl that Denver won over Ron Rivera's Carolina Panthers. Uh, And then he had more health-related issues, stepped down, and then came back a few years later as an offensive coordinator in Minnesota. But really, the examples are Wisenhunt, Quinn, and Martz. Those were the ones that I found. Um, I don't think there are a lot of examples of guys that coached for as long as Ron's coached and had some level of success. Look, you rarely get to coach for as long as Ron did without some level of success. And I know that a lot of you think that he was a terrible coach his entire coaching uh, tenure in both Carolina and Washington, but that wasn't the the truth in Carolina uh, anyway. Um, But uh, there were a couple of other things from the story that I thought was interesting. One was this. um, Rivera kind of regrets the coach-centric model that he was hired to do. He said, quote, I would have loved a different model just because, in hindsight, now you really see how much more time you spend on personnel. And as a coach, that's not necessarily what you want to do. What I really enjoyed more than anything else the last five weeks, meaning after he fired Jack Jack Del Rio, was just being right in the middle of everything. Now your only focus is just that one thing. That's what you do. You want to teach. Look, I, I don't have much sympathy for this as far as Ron's concerned. First of all, the last five weeks didn't go very well either with him involved or more involved than he had been. Um, this was, uh, you know, according to him, the coach-centric model was really part of the offer and what Snyder wanted. Yeah, Dan was looking for, you know, to, to hang his hat on Happy Thanksgiving. Look what I've come up with. Coach-centric. Um you know, not that he hadn't tried that before with sort of Mike Shanahan uh, and certainly with Marty Schottenheimer. But anyway, um, yeah, uh, I'm sure in hindsight, you know, after four years and the record uh, that was compiled and you being more of a CEO, CEO delegating coach, maybe it would have turned out better had you just been the football coach. It may have. Um, and then there was this. All right. Sam Howell. All right, you ready? I'm just going to read right directly from Kime's story, including Kime's words in a paragraph leading into a quote about Sam Howell. Rivera said he still believes Sam Howell can be a starting quarterback in the NFL, but he regrets how he handled this situation. Rivera announced last offseason that Howell would enter the team's workouts as the number one quarterback. Howell ended up starting all 17 games, throwing 21 touchdowns and 21 interceptions. Quote from Rivera, I took a big gamble. I put a lot on Sam, and I probably shouldn't have put as much pressure on him. And I think that was probably one of the mistakes I made this year. He didn't deserve to have that put on him. He's a good young quarterback, has some talent and some ability, and I think that's something I should have backed off on. I should have kept emphasizing he was going to be the guy that got the first opportunity. Just phrasing it that way would have taken a lot of pressure off of him, just kind of that he hadn't been anointed, closed quote. Oh, my God. I mean, there's so much here, but I'm going to net it out. First of all, 
yeah, you're right. You shouldn't have taken that big of a gamble. Secondly, you really didn't do it. You just kind of waffled through it. QB1, the number one guy entering the offseason, you know, there were times there where he actually talked about a competition. Well, we're not just handing it to him. He's got to earn it. But, yeah, slapping the QB1 label on him was a big gamble, and it was also for him in the moment kind of a get-out-of-jail-free card in that moment. I mean, I am convinced that Ben Standick had it right from day one, and that is in the aftermath of the end of that season in 2022, the Cleveland game in particular, where he started Carson Wentz and then at the end of the game, after the game, didn't know that he could be eliminated from the postseason on that particular day. He needed to deflect, and he deflected to the guy that we had just seen play okay in a totally meaningless game at the end of the year. You know, I'll I'll remind everybody that in a story with John Kime before the season started, he talked about the ride home after that Dallas game and how he told his wife, oh my God, I had no idea he was this good. And, you know, it went on and on. Uh, He needed, you know, an attention getter that was also a deflection from him. And hey, what's better than, I think we may have found our guy, people. I think we may have found him. Didn't you see that 11 for 19 performance against Dallas? You know, I just, and then waffling through it, you know, in the offseason, sometimes talking about, well, it's not like he's got to earn it, you know, it's his job to lose kind of a thing. And they signed Jacoby Brissett to the largest contract of any backup quarterback in the league. The whole thing was ill-conceived. It should have been based from day one on competition. You know, it should have been based on the fact that we, like Sam, we saw some things during the course of the year. Uh, He played pretty well against Dallas. Instead, it was, oh my God, did you see him against the Cowboys? And let me tell you what some of the people were saying. They hadn't seen a ball zip in there that quickly. Right when I came out of my break, it was there. DBs, right when the receivers came out, the ball was there. I couldn't do anything about it. Well, of course not, comparing Sam Howell's arm to Taylor Heineke's. It just was a bad idea. Hey, Uh, We're looking for a quarterback. Sam showed us a lot of things in that final. Uh, We saw some things uh, from him during the course of the year that he got better at in practice. He's going to have a chance. We're going to go out and see what we can do. Ownership situation may hamper us a little bit in this offseason, but we intend on getting some people in here and having a real competition. Um, But, you know, thinking about it that way now is not what you want from a true leader in a coach-centric model. He should have come up with that answer a year ago. Uh, And as far as, you know, keep emphasizing, uh, or as far as putting the pressure, excuse me, on Sam like it was too much on Sam, all they kept talking about as it related to Sam in terms of one of the, the highlights of Sam was his toughness, his resilience. His, and I'm, by the way, I believe them on all of that. So I don't know that Sam really was feeling it so much. And that ultimately was part of the problem. I think Sam played well at times. He played poorly at times. He played poorly more 
of the time against the better defensive teams. And what was exposed about Sam Howell was what every other team in the league knew on draft day 2022. And that is he's got some flaws that are potentially fatal. He is short, he doesn't process quickly, and he holds on to the ball too long. And because of that, he takes a lot of sacks. And then when the sack issue started to improve, we realized that it improved because he was bailing from the pocket too quickly. And he was missing too much. Um, Rivera finished, by the way, by saying he really likes Harris. He said the organization is in a very good position. Quote, if there's one thing that we can say over the four years, it's that I think the culture is headed in the direction it needs to be headed. The organization's in a very good position. Closed quote. Okay. Um, That's a bit, I think, of an attempt at, uh, you know, taking some of the credit for where the organization is now. I don't think we're ever going to look back on Ron Rivera's four years and give him a whole hell of a lot of credit for a lot other than being one hell of a guy who dealt with a lot of crap and a lot of stuff that even he couldn't have predicted and um, yeah, and brought some decent people for the most part into the organization. But there's no carryover effect from Ron Rivera into Adam Peters and the new head coach and the new organization. I don't think anybody will ever see it that way. I don't. Um, Adam Peters, we talked about you know his introductory presser yesterday. I wanted to mention something real quickly, um, and that is that you know when he got the job as the vice president of player personnel for the 49ers in 2017, the 49ers were coming off a 2-14 and season in 2016, and they had the number two pick in the draft. And there was a new general manager, there was a new head coach, and he was part of the brain trust of a team that was in a similar situation. And he talked about that a little bit and said, you know, those were dark years, those early years. But, you know, he, he learned a lot from it, and he's now kind of in a similar situation. Well, they had the number two pick. Remember, they traded that pick one spot down to allow Chicago to move one step up, one place up, and select Mitch Trubisky in that draft. That was the Patrick Mahomes draft, too, uh, if you're wondering. They took Solomon Thomas, who was a really good player at Stanford, but did not turn out to be a great uh, pro, Um, certainly not with uh, the 49ers. Um, and then remember at the end of the first round, they selected Reuben Foster, who, you know, Jay told us last week on the podcast, you know, the tape ultimately was just incredible of Reuben Foster. Um, and that was a player that they really coveted, uh, as well. But, um, the point here being is that not only were they coming off a bad season with the number two overall pick, they had a need for quarterback. Uh, that Colin Kaepernick, they had moved on from after 2016 with the new regime. Lynch and Kyle Shanahan didn't want Colin Kaepernick or anybody else that had been on the roster the year before on a 2-14 and 14 football team. And what did they do? They didn't take a quarterback at number two overall or at number three overall. You know, and there were opportunities in that draft. If they had loved Mahomes, they didn't take him. They didn't evaluate Mahomes as that high. They didn't evaluate Deshaun Watson as a quarterback they should take. And I reminded myself of the reason why. 
they didn't take a quarterback. It's because they thought that Kirk Cousins was going to be their quarterback. They tried to trade for Kirk Cousins. It didn't work out. And when it didn't work out, they were patient. John Lynch was patient. Kyle Shanahan was patient and said, that's okay, we'll get him next year in free agency. But if you recall, what happened was, well, first of all, Washington wouldn't trade Kirk Cousins to the Shanahans. Big mistake. They would have gotten number two overall and probably more for Cousins. Um, That was, you know, at the time, as much as I wanted them to sign Kirk to a long-term deal, they just couldn't figure out the market. They were too stupid to figure out that this guy commanded on the open market more than $54 million guaranteed. That was the second time and the last time that they insulted him with an offer that wasn't anywhere near market value. Six months later, the Jets offered $90 million guaranteed, and he settled on $80-plus million guaranteed uh, in the first-ever fully guaranteed contract in NFL history with the Vikings. Uh, We've covered that ground just a few times in the past. But they were hoping that Kirk Cousins was going to be their quarterback. And they offered a lot. It wasn't taken. It wasn't even considered by Washington because of the petulant, childlike front office and owner. They weren't going to give Kyle Shanahan who he wanted. By the way, in, I, I, I swear to you, I think Dan and Bruce actually disliked Kyle a lot more than they disliked Mike, just as a little bit of sort of anecdotal information, if I haven't mentioned that in the past. Uh, they didn't like either one of them, but they really didn't like Kyle, and they were not going to give Kyle his you know, quarterback. Uh, which was obviously penny-wise, pound-foolish. We knew it at the time. We know it even more now. But um, that's why they didn't take a quarterback at number two overall or trade back and take a quarterback at number three or maybe trade back again and take a quarterback. And then when it became apparent in 2017 that Kirk was going to be the prized free agent and that the contract value was going to be in excess of 80 to, 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 to potentially $90 million, that's when they decided to trade for Jimmy Garoppolo at the trade deadline in October of 2017, that first year in San Francisco. Uh, and they kind of gave up the hope of getting Kirk Cousins after that. Um, so, uh, but interesting, right, that, you know, Adam Peters – Number two overall, number two in 17. He wasn't the primary decision maker, understood, um, but that uh, the situations are so comparable. The only thing that isn't comparable is the head coach that he hires, more likely than not, won't have a guy that he coached that he hopes to trade for. Because there's really no quarterback, uh, I don't think, other than Justin Fields, worth trading for. In free agency, ironically, Kirk Cousins will be the number one free agent quarterback, uh, I think more so than Russell Wilson, in terms of being desired by multiple uh, teams. And there will probably be a bit of a bidding war. I think he's going to re-sign with Minnesota, and I think he will do it for the first time in his career with a level of an eye towards Minnesota's ability to build out the roster uh, and not um, taking the most amount of money. We'll see. Um, 
I don't think Washington will pursue Kirk Cousins. I was not about to lead uh, into that. Uh, but, you know, like I said yesterday, God, it's going to be fun here to sort of document, you know, each and every move. And the next big one is head coach, clearly. And the news is, is that Ben Johnson will be interviewed virtually on Friday, um, and they will interview Raheem Morris and Dan Quinn virtually on Thursday. I think the Ben Johnson virtual interview on Friday is interesting as he's getting ready for Detroit's biggest game in 32 years. You know, this, this, um, 31, 32 years, uh, he, uh, He's getting ready to, to, to potentially uh, lead Detroit as its offensive coordinator into an NFC title game. Uh, and he's going to do a virtual interview on Friday, two days before the game. Um, not that people can't do multiple things at the same time, as I've talked about before, as it relates to even this franchise. But I would just think that, you know, those virtual interviews, I mean, we read, as Tommy and I discussed yesterday, about how long the GM interviews were. Two and a half hours with the gatekeeper, Spielman, and then two and a half hours with Harris, and then another 90-minute second interview. Um, this first interview, even if it's just for two and a half hours, I would think that that's a significant chunk of a very important day as they get ready for uh, the divisional round game against Tampa Bay. By the way, did you see Todd Bowles, the Tampa Bay coach, get asked about the cold weather in Detroit as a warm weather team, and he had to tell the very nice reporter, uh, yeah, they've had a dome stadium there for decades. Um they're playing indoors. I am rooting for Todd Bowles more than anybody else this weekend. God, I would love to see him get his you know bouquet of flowers finally. I think he's always been an outstanding defensive mind, one of the better defensive minds in the league. He was in New York as a head coach, as we know, never had a quarterback. Uh, last year they were eight and nine, but that was not a good team. It was a fading Brady, a fading offense. And, you know, they were not the favorites to win the NFC South this year. New Orleans was a pretty sizable favorite, not to mention the fact that I think most people had Atlanta as the second pick in the NFC South. A lot of people thought Carolina could be much better than they were. And Tampa Bay won the division at nine and eight with Baker Mayfield playing at a high level, the defense now getting healthier and playing better. And uh, I don't think they can beat Detroit, but God, I would love to see that this weekend. I think more than anything else, Todd Bowles as the head coach in an NFC title game. And I'll just uh, mention this. Uh, they played the 49ers pretty tough in San Francisco in the regular season. It was a 13-7 to game at halftime. They turned the ball over or got stopped on downs five times in the game, four times in the second half as they were approaching the red zone or in the red zone. The final score was 27 to 14. They did a really good job defensively uh, against that team as well. Uh, McCaffrey in that game, 3.7 yards per carry against Tampa Bay in their regular season game. I think I think it was the one of the worst games of the year other than the Minnesota game on Monday night for McCaffrey all year long. Um, all right, let's get to Jay Gruden next, right after these words from a few of our sponsors. 
Hey guys, a new sponsor I want to tell you about. Our new sponsor, and we welcome them, is Lucy. Lucy is upping the nicotine pouch game with Lucy Breakers. Pouches packing a little something extra inside. What are Lucy Breakers? Well, if you know pouches, you know that the nicotine doesn't hit immediately, and neither does the flavor. The geniuses at Lucy came up with a brilliant way to fix both of those problems. They put a mini liquid capsule inside each breaker's pouch. Here's what you do. You grab a breaker's pouch and you break the capsule. Yes, you can break it with your teeth. It makes a really satisfying pop. You put it in your lip and enjoy the immediate nicotine and flavor release. Nobody's doing anything like this except for Lucy. It's a new kind of pouch technology and it's only available from Lucy. No more sandpaper pouches drying out in your mouth. No more weak flavors that don't last. Breakers are different. Four or eight milligrams of tobacco-free 100% pure nicotine. Six delicious flavors, too. Unique ones like apple ice or espresso and classics like mint or mango. It's time to break up with your dusty gas station pouches and go to lucy.co slash Sheehan and use promo code Sheehan, S-H-E-E-H-A-N, to get 20% off your first order. Lucy offers free shipping and has a 30-day refund policy if you change your mind. That's lucy.co. Use my code Sheehan to get 20% off and always free shipping. And here comes the fine print. Lucy products are only for adults of legal age, and every order is age verified. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. If you're a basketball junkie, then you know there's no better time of year than the NBA playoffs. Twice a week, J.J. Redick is cooking on his podcast, The Old Man and the Three. He has guys come on in all stages of their careers to talk about the league and share stories you won't hear anywhere else, including Devin Booker on why he talks so much trash, Ray Allen's epic free throw competitions with LeBron in Miami, and the moment Tyrese Halliburton knew Pascal Siakam would be a good fit in Indy. In addition to player interviews, every Monday, J.J. breaks down the top three things happening around the NBA with unmatched analysis. Analysis, not outlandish takes, and is often joined by masterminds of the game like Tim Legler to dive deep on rookie reports, trade breakdowns, and why is mean mugging now a tech? 
you won't find another outlet that covers the game as comprehensively and with such insight as JJ does it on The Old Man and the Three. Make this your companion podcast during the playoffs. Listen to The Old Man and the Three ad-free on Wondery Plus or wherever you get your podcasts. This segment of the show brought to you by MyBookie. Go to MyBookie.ag, use my promo code, KevinDC, and you'll get a cash bonus on your initial deposit. Everything's up for the divisional round of the playoffs. The Ravens, nine-point favorites with a total of 43.5 in the first game on Saturday against Houston. The Saturday night game, the 49ers are nine-and-a-half-point favorites over Green Bay. Largest total of any of the four games at 50 and a half. Detroit's minus six over Tampa in the first game on Sunday. The total's 48 and a half. And then Buffalo, an injured Buffalo team on defense, that is for sure. They are two and a half point favorites against the Chiefs in Orchard Park. The total is 45 and a half. Uh, Everything you need for the upcoming weekend you can find at mybookie.ag. Please use my promo code KevinDC. Don't put in Kevin980 or Kevin Team980. It's Kevin DC is the promo code, and that will give you a cash bonus on your initial deposit. All right, as mentioned, uh, I am going to be off for a couple of days. So I reached out to Jay Gruden, who is usually on with me on Fridays to see if he would come on today, and he was willing to do that. So he joins us right now. And obviously, the last couple of days have been some busy days for you on social media. How do you like social media these days? Oh, it's exciting. You know, you never know what you're going to get there in some of the comment columns. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's fun. It, in all honesty, is it really exciting or not? Do, no, do you... no, it's not. No, it's, just, it's, uh, it's uh, quite the trend, though, I'll tell you that. I mean, it's people take things a lot more seriously than they should, I believe. <laughs> Well, we'll get to the, your last comment in the back and forth with RG3, which was clearly sarcasm. I'm not sure if ever, people that don't know you may have thought you were being serious in apologizing for the staff. But let's just start with, and by the way, I'm having Jay on today so that we can talk about the playoff games. We can talk about Adam Peters and the GM coach setup and all of that stuff. And we're going to get to that. But your initial tweet just was about what you were seeing in the game. So let's start there. Yeah, yeah. Just uh, anytime you play a guy like Todd Bowles, uh, you know that there's a pretty good strong possibility you're going to get blitzed and blitzed often, especially if you line up an empty. He has empty automatic blitz. He's got uh, four strong four-week blitzes. He got a, he's got the whole package, double A's. He's got a hell of a package, old Todd Bowles does. And I just feel like, <laughs> man, they didn't even uh, – know that he was going to blitz. I mean, these are free runners like everywhere. They're off the edge, right up the middle. And uh, I just didn't give Jalen a chance or Jalen didn't see it. One or the other. I don't know if it was coaching or if it was all on Jalen, but there was, it just looked like they had no answer for anything. It really didn't look like they had much of an answer for a lot of things over the last month plus. Um, But when you tweeted that out, it was specifically about football. Were you surprised at the response? Yeah, I was. I didn't think many people followed me, so I didn't think it was that big a deal. But, uh, yeah, I was surprised at a couple of the responses. All right, well, let's talk about the RG3 response because that's the one that's gotten the most attention. Yeah, yeah, he just 
responded like he wasn't prepared, I guess, with his eyeballs, the little RG3 Emmy uh, or whatever it is, those memes, whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, so I just asked, you weren't prepared, Robert? You know, we had pretty good meetings and tried to get you prepared. If you weren't prepared, uh, shit, sorry. <laughs> so that that initial response when you said you weren't prepared was taken maybe by a lot of people as more of a statement about Robert and more of a criticism about Robert, which um, maybe some people viewed it that way. But you're saying that you, wh- what you essentially said was you weren't prepared, Robert, like it was a question, like you were, you know, questioning whether or not he felt like you had prepared him enough. Well, I put a question mark on there yeah, and wondered why he wasn't prepared because I sat in all the meetings and I thought we prepared. You know, we had... We had some issues with protection too. I mean, we're not perfect by any means. You know, sometimes a tackle gets beat. Sometimes you, you know, you get beaten. You get sacked. You know, so he did get sacked quite a bit. I think in the preseason game against Detroit, he got sacked five or six times in two series or three series. And uh, so, yeah, yeah, man, we had some issues. But you yeah. know, I, the big question was: was you weren't prepared? Was the big question. You know, we don't have to spend a lot of time on this. We don't. But I think there's yeah. a lot of interested people. I mean, look, yesterday was a day to look forward with the initial, uh, the uh, official announcement of the hiring of Adam Peters. And this fan base, and look, I'm, I'm, I'm a culprit as well because we didn't have a lot to cheer about in the moment. There was a lot of looking back um, at, you know, positive and negative alike. Sometimes just sort of wallowing in each other's misery in this community of, of fans. But... The Robert era is a 30 for 30. It'll be much more interesting than, you know, the self-produced all-in for week one documentary that he did on himself uh, between his rookie year and and his second year after the injury uh, in the Seattle game. I mean, this is going to document potentially the meteoric rise like we've never seen before of a rookie quarterback taking the league by storm, and then the epic and very immediate downfall. Uh, It'll be a fascinating story whenever it's done. You were there for a lot of it. What was it like to coach him? Well, you know, when I got the job, um, I was well aware of what he did as a rookie. You know, I was also well aware he had an injury um, against Seattle, and I was well aware that he wanted to try to transition into being more of a drop back type quarterback, and um, we tried to help make that transition smooth. Transition smooth. That's why I hired smooth. That's why I hired Sean McVay because he was with Kyle, and we were able to implement some of the things that uh, Kyle did that were very successful with Robert, and some of the things that I did with Andy Dalton and, and with my brother that I thought would help uh, a quarterback out, which made quarterbacks successful. Helped Andy Dalton a lot. He made a lot of money, and. Uh, so we tried to implement kind of a dual-type plan for our Robert and try to get him there. Unfortunately, there was a guy named Kirk Cousins on our roster and Colt McCoy, and, and they both in practice were throwing the ball extremely well. So we had kind of a competition, but we let Robert have the reins, and unfortunately he got hurt against Jacksonville and, and uh, gave opportunities to those other guys. And all of a sudden, the more opportunities they got, the better they looked. And we just figured for the betterment of the football team, Kirk was the best player to help us win period it was nothing personal it's just that kirk was a more talented passing quarterback at the time right but you went through the entirety of the 2014 season that first year 
um, with Kirk and then Colt after Kirk didn't play well in his first opportunity to start following uh, RG3's injury. And then when Robert got healthy and came back, he was in there for a few weeks and it didn't go well. Your effort to develop him into what he wanted. Um, look, he was su- when, when, when Mike and the Shanahan regime got chased out of town by, by Dan and Robert, he was hashtagging, you know, and trademarking hashtags like you read about. You know, we're, we're, we get to do things the way we want to do them now. Hashtag the movement. Hashtag this. Hashtag that. He was excited about you coming in because he was going to get to play quarterback the way that he envisioned himself which was more, you know, a combination maybe of Peyton Manning and Aaron Rodgers, whatever. When did you yeah. realize that that really wasn't going to be something that he would be good at doing? Well, for Robert to have success in the league, you have to do be multidimensional and be able to run the zone reads and some of the RPOs, which we try to keep in there. Uh, um, but you also have to be able to throw the ball, obviously, because once those dry up, you have to have some form of drop-back passing game, especially with the personnel that we had that year. We had Deshaun Jackson. I think we had Pierre. We had Jordan Reed. We had Chris Thompson out of the backfield. We we had some pretty good weapons to throw the ball to, so we wanted to get them the ball as well. So the more you practiced and the more you saw them out there, we, we kind of realized that he wasn't the best passer on our football team. Kirk and Colt were much better equipped at doing that as far as a drop-back passing game. and. Uh, and it showed on the field. It showed in practice every day. It wasn't just a snap decision that we made. It was a decision that myself and Sean McVay and Matt Cavanaugh and uh, Bill Callahan, the entire staff, we saw every day. That's why we made it. It wasn't. It wasn't that. It was nothing personal at all. It was all trying to get the best player on the field at the time. And at the time, uh, we went through Kirk. Kirk struggled a little bit. We went back to Colt. Colt uh, got hurt, and then we went back to Robert. And he struggled a little bit more. And then that offseason through OTAs, it was clear the best passer uh, was Kirk. And that's why we went and announced Kirk as a starter so we wouldn't have to go through all these changing of the guard every single week if a guy played poorly. We want to announce the starting quarterback, give him the opportunity to have the job without looking over his shoulder and have the confidence that we were going to play him through thick and thin so he he could play and, and let him loose. And he did. He played very well. He went to the playoffs that year. How hard was that on Robert at the time? I'm sure it was hard because he had, like you mentioned, he, you know, he got a lot of publicity at first year. Um, they won the division, uh, and uh, he did some really good things. He won Rookie of the Year. There's no doubt about it. But you know, as a quarterback, you have to develop. You have to continue to get better every day. And um, to transition to the type of quarterback he wanted to be is not easy for a young player who never really went through concepts and audible and the line of scrimmage and reading coverages, reading. Uh, pure progressions or uh, side of the field, single high, two deep, whatever it might be, um, protections, getting to the right protection. He's a smart kid. He can handle everything mentally. Just physically, it didn't transition quite well enough and took a lot of sacks and, and uh, just didn't work out. I mean, just those guys were better than him at the at the quarterback position at that time. That's why we made the change. It had nothing to do with anything else. Well, how and it, it's clear that it's clear that it was the right decision. I mean, Kirk is still playing at ultra-high level, right? I mean, it's not like it was a terrible decision. Jay, the, everybody that's followed this saga understands what Robert Griffin III's career was and, and, and what Kirk Cousins' career was. I mean, nobody that's reasonable thinks that wrong decisions were made. In the moment in 2014, oh, my God, it was a very, very polarizing decision. You remember that. 
um, because people had remembered 2012, and they made it about a lot of different things. And you were in the middle of it, and you were just playing the best guy. But I, you know, that environment back then was incredibly polarizing in this city. National writers picked up the cause, injected into the conversation were racial overtones too, to a certain degree. When Kirk yeah, was name yeah. starter, um, so there there was a lot to that. What was Robert like as a teammate once you made that decision? You know, Robert was fine. You know, obviously he was frustrated a little bit, but he didn't cause any um controversy or he wasn't a pain he he came out to practice and tried to do the best he could he did the scout team reps and and tried to get himself better and make it a competition more of a competition but you know once the more kirk played the more that he solidified himself as a starting quarterback for the washington redskins at the time so uh but robert never uh was a problem whatsoever how was dan during that time he was fine. He understood it. I think uh, everybody in the organization, when you see the game, if you just watch the games, you could see that one guy was better than the other guy, pretty much. You know, if you just watch the game, but we're at practice every day as well, so we all could see it. And uh, but he was okay. I think everybody wanted the best for Robert at the time, but you know, sometimes somebody else in the building beats you out. That's just the nature of pro football. You have competition every day at every position. It's like that. I mean, we had high expectations for. Josh Doxson and Sue Cravens and all that stuff, but sometimes these guys just come in and, and don't perform like we anticipated, and other guys beat them out. That's just the nature of pro football. Yeah. Um, all right, do you anticipate any more back and forth with RG3? I don't. I really don't. I hope he understands <laughs> I feel bad. I, mean, I did the best I could there, Kevin. I really did, but uh, just didn't work out. It worked out for Kirk in a big way. I mean – got a lot of money and he's still playing and, and Robert had a chance to go on and play somewhere else. He went to Cleveland, he went to Baltimore and yeah. it didn't work out there either. So I, I you know, so whatever. No, I, I think, I think everybody understands the conclusion to the story um, as it, as it played, uh, as it played out. Um, do you, I just, you know, I just, I just get upset at the fact that, you know, anybody who says they weren't prepared. I mean, I, I like to feel like we put a lot of time in. I had a really good staff. I you know Sean McVay was our offensive coordinator. He spent a lot of time with those quarterbacks. And we had Matt Cavanaugh as a quarterback coach, and we hired uh, Kevin O'Connell as a quarterback coach, and O'Connell as a coordinator. So those guys have pretty much shown the world that they are very good football coaches. And I had Bill Callahan as a line coach, and West or uh, West Phillips as a tight end coach. He's offensive coordinator for the Vikings right now. So we had a pretty good staff. Yes, uh, the staff you had was a pretty good one for offensive players and quarterbacks. Um, and let me just make sure that everybody understands the context. Uh, Jay's response to Robert saying to Jay, you told me you didn't know how to coach a quarterback who could throw and run like me, so looks like you weren't prepared, Jay. Um, and Jay responded, you're right, we didn't have a good enough staff. Sorry, hope all is well uh, with you. Um, that was sarcasm for those of us that know Jay. Uh, he wasn't apologizing literally for not having a good, uh, good enough staff. Uh, Robert Griffin III had fantastic 
coaches, offensive coaches, when he was in Washington. And, you know, again, uh, we kind of know the conclusion uh, to this. And I think most reasonable people that followed the day-to-day and even not even the day-to-day, just the overall arc uh, to the story um, understand that ultimately uh, he was as responsible for the lack of a career as anybody else was. But it's been hard for him to take accountability for those things. I think that's, I think that's Jay, in some ways, um, the disappointment for those that were, you know, even the diehards in the dying days that believed that the organization had wronged Robert in some way, shape, or form. I think even for them, they got to a point where it's been hard to not see Robert take more responsibility for his own demise as a player. But anyway, uh, he's become pretty effective at getting things and getting people riled up on social media, that's for sure. I can't compete with him that well. That's why I should probably let it go, because he's got the bigger mic. <laughs> well, I, I think I think what's frustrating for – you know what? Actually, I don't think anything's frustrating. I, I think we're done with this topic. Let's move on. Let's talk um, some football. Let's talk about the future rather than uh, the past. Uh, and let's start with Adam Peters. Um Washington hired Adam Peters yesterday. You and I talked a little bit about their, you know, final two candidates. You didn't know much about either one of them. So I'll just ask you about the relationship between GM and head coach. It was never a smooth situation here. Understood. I think we all understand with Dan as the owner, it was never a a, a situation that was ideal. But what should the relationship between general manager and head coach be? Well, they have to be on the same page. And obviously, they have to understand who has a final say, and communication is critical because they're not always going to agree on everything. Uh, But you have to understand that both parties are going to do what they believe is best for the football team, period. It's not about personal accolades and, hey, I signed this guy. I did this. This is my pick. This is mine. This is a team pick. This is a team decision. And as long as everybody's on board with that, then uh, you're not going to get your way all the time. That's okay. Just develop the guys that you get, be happy with the guys that you get, and make them the best players that they can become. And and don't feel like this is anything personal. It's a team decision. And uh, whoever he hires as a head coach, whether he gives them full control over personnel or not, if they split it, that's great. Just make sure they work together and they all have the betterment of the Washington Commander franchise as their number one priority, period. Who should have the final say? Well, it depends on the guy. You know, a lot of coaches, they want to have final say just because they want to, you know, beat their chest and and have the power. But not all coaches want to put the time in to study every college draft pick or free agent or every free agent in the NFL and put the time in and work in. Um, So, yeah, so if you want total control, then you better be ready to, you know, get up there early in the morning and, and grade every player that's coming out in the draft and every college free agent. And then when free agency hits, you better be ready to know who you can afford and who you can't afford and what positions you need to upgrade and who you need to target. So uh, that takes a lot of work. So I, I personally think, you know, if you're going to hire a young coach like a Ben Johnson or somebody like that, I think the GM should have control over personnel and Ben should have control over uh, obviously the play calling and all in the plays and the 53 man roster and all that stuff. And, um, coaches have their say and their, and their um, grades and their reports, but the scouting staff and the GM should have control over personnel. What was, not many coaches are willing to put that type of work in. 
Right. You did, though, for the most part, right? Oh, I loved it. That was my favorite part of the job. And, and I've just, I always believed, I, I've said it a thousand times, that it's not about the plays, it's about the players. And you look around the league and you look at the AFC, those four best quarterbacks are in the Final Four. C.J., Mahomes, Josh Allen, and uh, who's the other one? Uh, the other one would be um, Mahomes, Allen, Stroud, and Lamar. And Lamar, obviously. Yeah, and yeah. Lamar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so you, you got to, first of all, you got to address that position. That's the most important position in sports. They have the number two pick. So, whatever the GM decides to do, it's all about this number two pick, how we're going to develop this number two pick. Because if this number two pick, if they trade up to one or if they get two, it is a, uh, a chance for you to solidify your job for the next 15 years uh, and make this team go where it wants to go. And if you if you strike out a number two pick, you'll be looking for a job in two to three years. That's just the way it is. Uh, so the answer to the following question for you would be number two overall, the question being what's the most important addition here in the offseason, the GM, the head coach, or who they pick at number two? Do they pick at number two? I don't think it's even close. I think it's uh, <laughs> they got to address that position. I mean, it's it's no secret to why these teams. Andy Reid has had so much success. He had you know Donovan McNabb at Philadelphia. He's got Patrick Mahomes here, and he's a great football coach. I know it, but he's a better football coach than Patrick Mahomes. And, and Sean McDermott, you know, he was on the brink of getting fired. Everybody wanted to get rid of him, and then here comes Josh Allen playing like a monster the last five five weeks. And, uh, Lamar Jackson, I mean, he's shown that he can do a little bit of everything. And, and, and 49ers strike out on a first-round pick as quarterback, but they, they find a diamond in the rough and get Brock Purdy in the seventh round. So uh, you got to have a quarterback, and coaching matters. I understand that, but quarterback's very important. So whoever they pick has got to be able to have – if they pick a defensive guy, that's fine, but just make sure they have an offensive coordinator that can develop this quarterback. And they pick an offensive guy, you better make sure he's all in on developing this quarterback and he can do it um, – in a, in, a, in a great way. What was the most normal situation when you were here between sort of front office and, and head coach? Um, I don't know. I think probably I don't. It was never really crazy abnormal. It's just there's a few circumstances there with free agents and some of the draft picks that we didn't agree with, and it wasn't so much we. Like I said before, you know, you're not always going to get your own way, but when the majority of people are one way and then just somebody with more power is the other way and picks that person, it's frustrating. But for the most part, you know, I think in, once we announced Kirk, those two years with Kirk, three years with Kirk were normal, other than the fact we're going through that contract issue with the franchise tag, we couldn't sign them. That wasn't very normal. So it was really never really normal because we never really felt like we had a quarterback. Then we got Alex Smith, we were 6-3, and three and we were playing pretty good, so it felt like we were back on track. And then all hell breaks loose with the injuries and all that stuff. So, uh, unfortunately, when you don't have that position um, solidified, it's never going to be normal. It's always going to be who's going to be our guy moving forward because, like I said before, once you solidify that position, you're solidified pretty much as a head coach if you could just surround them with good people. Um, I mean, we, we understand Dan's uh, input in some of the picks over the years. Dwayne Haskins is an example. What was the biggest disagreement you and Bruce ever got into? Oh, uh, we've had a few. Um, yeah, we, uh, I don't know. I mean, we, we've had some free agents. I don't want to talk about the free agents because social media will, will bust me in the head. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> some free agents that we signed. Mm-hmm. And there's some guys that we had to keep that I didn't want to keep. Um, 
because we signed them as free agents, but they were bad for the football team. And uh, sometimes, you know, when you go out and pay a guy, uh, you know, Bill Belichick was famous for it. He went out and signed a bunch of guys that didn't work out, and he cut them after two or three weeks and still paid them the money. And sometimes you have to do that. You have to take chances with some free agents, get them in the building. But once they're in the building, if they don't fit what you're trying to do, then you can't be married to them. You have to make those decisions. And, and uh, when it's for the betterment of the football team, it's better for the locker room. Those are decisions that have to be made. And those decisions I didn't have the power to make. And that was frustrating as well. Um. Well, I'm intrigued by – I mean, I think I know the answer to a couple of them uh, because you've mentioned it before. But uh, Bruce didn't really mess with anybody on the draft, though, right? No, yeah, he did. He was he was in the draft, all the draft meetings. Bruce at least sat in the meetings with the personnel guys, so I, I have respect for that. And I always mention when I was at Cincinnati, Mike Brown had the final say, but I had a ton of respect for him and his background and the work that he put in because he sat in every meeting and he watched the film and he listened to the scouts he listened to the coaches' reports. He listened to the coordinators' reports. And if there was a disagreement, uh, he would step in and, and use his expertise and what he listened to and what he saw and, and make the decision. Everybody respected that, and there was no issue with that whatsoever. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's the most important thing. It's, personnel is very hard because everybody's going to have their own opinion what they think is better for your team. A coordinator, say, I want this guy as a pass rusher. I want this guy as a linebacker. You need to be fast. He needs to be run sideline to sideline and the scout says well he's not big enough we need a bigger guy stop the run you know well he can't run he can't cover anybody because it's a spread out league so you have all kinds of difference of opinions um but bottom line is you just have to figure out who the best one is for your team and then once that decision is made you got to develop him as a coach that's just the way it is when scott was there and it was you doing evaluation scott doing evaluation bruce is involved dan's involved was that at all, at all functional during those two two off seasons or not? I think Scott's first year, yeah, we were fine. You know, we we didn't always see eye to eye, but I got along good with Scott. I thought he worked hard at it and uh, did some good things. You know, unfortunately, I don't know what happened there um, with him, but yeah, uh, I like Scott. I thought Scott was a football guy and uh, worked extremely hard at it, but uh, that obviously didn't work out. I like Kyle Smith a lot. Kyle Smith was probably my favorite guy to work with because he was. He was really uh, diligent at working hard and, and um, getting the reports and studying the film. And, you know, he had his beliefs and what a, a guy looks like at each position, and as did I. And we'd go head-to-head sometimes, but I had a ton of respect for why he liked the guy or why he didn't like the guy that I liked or, or vice versa. And uh, and we came to conclusions and made decisions, and it was, it was great. I had a great working relationship with Kyle. All right, let's get to some of the games uh, from the weekend just concluded and the upcoming weekend in the divisional round with Jay. And we'll do that after I tell you about a new premier Highline exotic dealership new to the DMV. They specialize in clean, low-mile, and unique spec vehicles. Every car goes through a 110-point inspection and is backed by an extensive warranty, financing, leasing available on all vehicles, and the expert staff at magnanmotors.com has an average of 20 years of experience. If you're into premier, unique spec vehicles, MagdenMotors.com is the place to go. You can check out their inventory again at MagdenMotors.com. All right, more with Jay Gruden right after these words from a few of our sponsors. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. More with Jay Gruden coming up. Let me just mention that Due South and Navy Yard is celebrating this week, Restaurant Week, right through January 21st by turning up the heat with a three-course price-fixed dinner for just $40. That's right, a starter, a mouth-watering entree, and a sweet treat to finish it off, all for the deliciously affordable price of $40. Whether you're craving some crispy fried Brussels sprouts or diving into a plate of slow-cooked pulled pork, Due South's got your taste buds covered, and that's not all. Mark your calendars. Due South is throwing a Mardi Gras party in town on Fat Tuesday, February 13th. Get ready to let the good times roll with their legendary Cajun buffet, live music, and beads galore. They're talking about the most authentic Mardi Gras experience outside of New Orleans right here in the nation's capital. It's the party of the year. You don't want to miss it. Grab your friends, bring your appetite, and join us at Due South for a week of unbeatable dining deals during restaurant week and then the ultimate Mardi Gras bash in February. Good times, great eats. That's how they do it down south, and they're bringing it all to D.C. Learn more at DueSouthDC.com. All right, um, let's quickly talk about the games that were just played and then the uh, four divisional round games. Uh, was there a bigger stunner than what happened to Dallas? No, no. no nobody expected that, and, and uh, it, it's, it's crazy. So but why did it happen? Dallas play, well, they're too little. They're too little on defense. They can't stop the run. And as I was, Buffalo obviously put the blueprint of that. Josh Allen threw the ball eight times or ten times against Dallas. James Cook run for 500 yards or whatever it was. And, and when you put that on film and you don't make any adjustments personnel-wise, and they did they kept their little linebackers and their little defensive linemen, uh, and Green Bay just pushed them around. They took that opening drive, went 80 yards, and, and it looked easy. I mean, they're running outside zones and inside zones. They're throwing play actions, and, and they just gutted them. And then back, I think when that happens, when you see the opening drive go 80, 75 yards for a touchdown pretty easily, yeah, you, you kind of get a little panic mode, and Mike Carthy came out. And he tried to run the ball and, and 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 be physical, and they got the third and eight, threw an incompletion. Next thing you know, it's fourteen and nothing, and he throws a pick, and then it's twenty-one nothing, and and then <laughs> you're just panic. You're in a dead panic, and they could never recover. But I, I, I was shocked by it, but I wasn't totally stunned by it because of the way Dallas plays defense. Yeah, I I, I felt like the same way. Like people, we'll talk about Dak here in a moment, but. Defense was the number one reason by far they lost the football game. And after that first drive, I actually watching was like, Dak looks tight. Like they might feel already like they're in a game where every possession. Look, you had that team in 2016. You know, you had a team where every single time the offense came out onto the field, you felt like you better hold on to the football, you better score, or you could be in trouble. Um, and that's what it felt like early. And do you think the pressure got to him? Yeah, I think it did a little bit. That's a stressful situation. Now, when you're 
watching your defense and you're standing on the sideline for eight to ten minutes while they, the other team just running down your throat. Then you finally get the ball and you're doing, you know, you're jumping up and down trying to get loose and you're, you're forcing the issue and you're trying to drive balls in spots that you normally probably wouldn't. You might, you know, so uh, that's just a tough situation and it was just that they could never get out of the hole. They couldn't get a key stop or a key turnover. They couldn't make a big play on offense and they just never could catch up and hats off to Green Bay because Jordan Love, he did throw under pressure from time to time, but it didn't face him at all. He was dropping some serious dimes in that game under duress and uh, what an impressive performance by him. I don't think people really, I think a lot of people are saying, wow, Dallas is terrible, Dak chokes and all that stuff, but at some point you got to give the Green Bay Packers and Jordan Love some credit. Yeah, definitely. Uh, They played great, and he was awesome. But when it comes to Dallas, most people in talking about that team, and they get talked about more than any other team in the league, they focus on their failures. Um, And the two biggest names mentioned coming out of this, and I agree with you, I thought it was defense number one overall. That's why they lost the game. But what's your takeaway on Dak after a game like that? Uh, you know, it's really hard. He had really a really, really good year, almost an MVP-type level year. So you have to give him credit for that because, you know, you're talking 17 games and to put himself in a position to win the division, get a home game in the playoffs, that's not easy to do. Uh, so you got to give him credit for that. And then you get in the big game and the most opportune time to really show uh, your progression as a quarterback and as a young man, and uh, you, you throw two key interceptions that shouldn't have been thrown. I mean, uh, the, the first one to, to Alexander, the ball should have gone to CeeDee Lamb right over his head. I, I know that concept. It's a flag concept. You have a, a drag china and you have a deep seven route behind it, and if the corner jumps the drag china, you throw it to CeeDee Lamb right over his head. Uh, and then the other one was a quick seam. We call it a, you got a shallow cross and a, a little slant behind it, and if the Mike linebacker does not chase the shallow cross, you throw it to the shallow cross. And the shallow cross is wide open, he tried to throw it to the slant, and it was pick six, so those are two decisions that I can't believe that he made. Other than that, he threw for 388 yards and did some good things. But in critical times, your decision-making has to be on point. And for whatever reason, those two plays, which were critical plays in the game, he wasn't on point. But you have to still say that Dak Prescott is a solid quarterback in the National Football League. And, and I think moving forward, if they did something with Dak, they'd be silly because, as we all know, there's not many quarterbacks out there that could play like Dak can for that for 17 weeks and put up the numbers that he put up. Right. But that, that therein lies the rub because you got to pay him 60 million a year. Basically you got to make that decision and he's not elite. He's not Mahomes. He's not Josh Allen. He's not, you know, a top five, top seven quarterback. Um, and you wonder whether or not there is a ceiling that he's already reached uh, but if you get rid of him, it, more likely than not, you won't find somebody as good as him. That, that's kind of where a lot of teams yeah, are in this league. A lot of teams are like that. It's called quarterback purgatory, and 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 you have to pay a quarterback, and you can't just go into the offseason bare ass naked without a guy. You better have a plan if you're going to uh, choose not to re-sign back. Okay, you're going to let that go somewhere else. Let him go to another team in your division, let them go to another team in your conference, let them go to another team, but then what are you going to do? What pick do you have? Can you trade up and get a guy? Um, is there a free agent that you want to get? Do you want to try to trade for Justin Fields or whatever it might be? Then you have to pay him a lot of money. So uh, the search for that position is is real, and if you have a guy that's pretty good, I think Dak is pretty good, 
I think you still can get over the top with him, but if you pay him that much money, you're going to lose some key players. You might lose your Pro Bowl guards. You might lose Micah Parsons. You might lose Stephon Gilmore. I mean, these are critical pieces to your football team, so you have to be prepared for that. How are you going to replace those guys? And it's a very tough deal for these teams. That's why Josh Mahomes, or Josh Allen and Patrick Mahomes and these guys, you can pay them all you want because you can surround them with whatever, and they'll give your, your team a great chance to win. All right, some of the other games real quickly. Um, did the Chiefs prove to you that they can be the Chiefs moving forward through the rest of these playoff games, including at Buffalo on Sunday? Yeah, they've, they've morphed into a more physical football team. Uh, defensively, they're playing at a very high level. They're number two in defense, so they're going to be in games. And then you give Patrick Mahomes opportunities because your defense is playing well, then yes, you have an opportunity to win every single game. And, and they're playing more physical up front. I like the fact that they're running between the tackles and they have a powerful offensive line. I love uh, their guards uh, are very good. Their centers are good. And, and Pacheco's running the ball physically, and that'll open up things for Kelsey and as a play action. And I like the fact that they got a number one, a true number one receiver now in Rasheed Rice, and that's big. So they got Rasheed Rice, they got Travis Kelsey, they got Pacheco, and then maybe get some other guy a ball, Watson every now and then. But they have the ability to beat you because they have a strong defense, they have an unbelievable quarterback, and they have two legit weapons. Uh, coming out of the backfield and throwing the ball to. I want you to second guess a little bit, or maybe you first guessed it, Sean's decision to punt in Detroit territory. One timeout left, about four minutes to go. It's fourth and 14, understood, but there's a chance you never get the ball back against Detroit. Would you have gone for that, or would you have punted it? They played really good defense in the second half, and uh, they were stopping them pretty good. And it was an unfortunate no call and the holding call on the Puka Nakua. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he got pulled his jersey. But, uh, yeah, you know what, four minutes to go, that's a lot of time. And I think that uh, he made the right decision. Fourth and 14 is not an easy down. You know, most people are going to play sticks, and they're, they're going to sit at the sticks with a lot of depth, and you're going to have to check it down and maybe break a tackle and uh, hopefully get lucky with a 14-yard gain. But punting the ball, backing them up with one timeout, you assume he might get the ball back and let Matthew do his thing. But uh, I could have gone either way with that decision, but I think punting wasn't terrible. I thought it was an incredibly well-quarterbacked game. Uh, did you Do you agree? And if so, who was the better of the two quarterbacks in the game? Well, Matthew got beat up. And I, I put a little tweet out there that this is one badass. I mean, he is a tough, yeah. competitive son of a gun. He really I, is. I love this guy. Love him. He, I mean, he just – he is a stud. He's a great competitor. But you can't argue with what uh, Ben Johnson and Jared Goff have done with that offense. They didn't play very well in the second half. They only scored three points. They got out to a nice lead. Uh, struggled a little bit offensively in the second half, but they did enough to win. And Jared Goff has been a true pro and, and handled the situation like a, a champ and uh, moved on to the next level. Now they play Detroit and they have a chance to or, uh, they play Tampa. Tampa Bay and have a chance to play for the NFC Championship. Yeah. Uh, the last time they were in the NFC Championship, Jay? was here in Washington against the 91 Skins, maybe the best Super Bowl-winning team of all time. 41-10 to 10, uh, was the final, and that was the last time Washington fans enjoyed glory. Uh, been a long time. Um, all right, let's look at the games uh, this weekend real quickly before we get to your lock of the week. Uh, Texans-Ravens on Saturday, the first game of Divisional Round Weekend. C.J. Stroud coming in off of that great game against Cleveland. Baltimore off the bye week. The Ravens are nine-point favorites. Who do you like? Uh, you got to take Baltimore. Baltimore does not have a weakness. They're able to beat you 
physically, they can maul you. Uh, Gus Edwards and Justice Hill, they can run the ball, and obviously the design runs for Lamar. And now Lamar can throw it and drop back game, and he can throw all kinds of throws. He's playing at an unbelievable level, not just as a runner, as a passer. I feel like in years past that if he got ahead of Baltimore, they couldn't come back because they can't throw the ball. Now it's not the case. They can throw the ball. They got receivers Bateman and obviously uh, Zay Flowers and Odell Beckham and, and this Isaiah Likely guys emerges a good tight end threat. So I just think they have too much for Houston. As much as I've been a Houston fan this whole time and love C.J. Stroud and uh, hopefully Tank Dell gets back, but uh, uh, they're 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 fun to watch and they're a young football team that's going to be have to be dealt with for a long time with that group of guys and that coach. I love D'Amico Ryan's and um, Sloak's done an unbelievable job, but I think it'll be a good game. But I think Baltimore just overpowers them do you like them laying the big number yeah i do i do you know the key for houston is to stay out of third and long obviously it's key for every team because uh baltimore's defense they really do a great job of coverage uh mixing their coverages and confusing quarterbacks are number one in defense and sacks are number one in turnovers are number one in this um and mcdonald has a great plan all the time he doesn't have to rush five he doesn't have to rush six he can rush four he can rush five he can do he does a lot of different things uh, so first, second down will be key. Singletary will be key. they got to maintain possession of the football to have a chance. But I think at the end of the day, Lamar's just got too much going for him right now. He's just, the only issue I have, they haven't played a meaningful snap since the end of December. Right. And they've had a lot of time off. It might be a little rusty, but uh, if they jump on them early, then I think they cover it easy. How much of a chance do you give Jordan Love and the Packers at San Francisco? The way Jordan Love's playing, I give him a, a, lot, a big chance. And the running game is going well. And the receivers, the young receivers, are starting to uh, emerge. And Matt Lafleur does a good job. He knows that defense well, so I give him a good chance. Really, I think it'd be a heck of a game. But at the end of the day, with the way San Francisco plays on offense, their physicality, I just think they're going to be too much for Green Bay as well. So, do you like Green Bay plus the points? No, I still think it's San Fran. I think San Fran, again, I think uh, with the pass rush, Chase Young and Bosa, if they force them into some passing situations, I think uh, they'll they'll do enough damage uh, with the pass rush to get the Jordan level a little bit. And I think San Fran, with the way they can run the ball and throw the ball, those weapons that they have, I just think they're too much too. I mean, this is where the cream starts to rise with the crop and the upset stop. This is where the best teams win, in my opinion. I think Baltimore and San Francisco are in a collision course to play each other in a Super Bowl. Um, let's go to Sunday. Uh, Todd Bowles clearly had a really good night. We talked about him last week, I think, on the show, maybe two weeks ago, because I've always been kind of a fan of his from afar. Uh, I'm kind of rooting for him. Do you give him a chance at Detroit, the Bucks? Yeah, I love Todd Bowles. He's a great guy and a good man and a good football coach. But, uh, no, I don't give him a chance. I think uh, Ben Johnson will have a plan for these blitzes, and I think if uh, Tampa has a weakness, it's a secondary, and I think Amonra St. Brown and, and these guys will get after him pretty good, and Laporte is playing at a high level, and they'll have a plan for these blitzes. <laughs> I promise you that. <laughs> and Jared will have a good day. And Obviously, running the football will be key as well. Uh, Gibbs and Montgomery are solid. They can – uh, they can take and punish. I just think the Detroit offensive line, which not many people talk about, is, is probably one of, if not the best in the NFL, and, and it'll be too much. But I do think Tampa will have some success offensively. I think it'll be a pretty high-scoring game, and it'll be a fun one to watch, but I think Detroit's a better team than they'll win. All right. Uh, Detroit laying six right now in that one. Uh, we'll come back to the your, your lock of the week here in a second. Lastly, Buffalo laying two and a half at home against KC. Finally, we get to see Mahomes play a road playoff game. Uh, size that one up for everybody. 
Yeah, I think uh, this will be a great game, obviously. Two of the best to ever do it at the quarterback spot, and Josh Allen is playing at a high level, and they're getting James Cook involved a lot. I think uh, Brady's done a nice job of really establishing the run game, which has helped Josh Allen a lot. I and mean, They can run the ball a lot of different ways, and obviously Josh Allen is an unbelievable runner with the football, so that's going to be key for them to keep Kansas City off the field. they got to maintain possession of the ball, obviously, and Josh got to protect it. Diggs has got to step up in a big way. He's going to have to make some plays for sure. But I think Kansas City right now, the way they're playing offense and the way they're playing defense is going to be too much for Buffalo. And Buffalo's just got too many injuries on defense yeah. for me. I think Patrick Mahomes will make way more, uh, will make a lot of plays, and Kansas City will do great on defense. And I think Kansas City is the play. You liked the Rams last week, but you didn't go with them. You went you went with Philadelphia instead. So you've lost two in a row. You're still 11-6. and six on this podcast yeah. for the year, which is uh, yeah, I apologize pretty good. about the Eagles, man. I didn't, uh, you know, I, I, I <laughs> watched the last two games the Bucks played and they beat Carolina 9 to nothing, and they beat somebody else terrible or they lost. They just didn't look very good on offense. That's why I took Philadelphia. I thought they'd figure it out. I didn't know A.J. Brown wasn't playing. I mean, nobody told me that. That was, that's BS. Yeah, that, that, that that was a big deal for sure. That was a sincere apology from Jay, unlike the one that he put out uh, on Twitter, which was more sarcastic. All right, so your lock of the week is what? I'm still going to roll with my. I'm, I'm going to go with Kansas City. I think Kansas City on the road and Patrick Mahomes and Patrick Re- or uh, uh, Andy Reid. I just think it'll be too much for Buffalo. I'm also leaning towards Detroit. I think Detroit and Kansas City are two great picks, but I think Kansas City with the play, just the way they play in big games, Kelsey and Mahomes, and they've just done it over and over again. And Andy Reid will have a play or two up his sleeve to make a big play, manufacture a big play, and I think they get it done. All right, I'm going to do uh, allow you to do what I do in my picks, which is tell everybody the line's plus two and a half, but you'll take KC buying the half point. You got to pay minus 120 or more on that, uh, but you'll take KC plus I'll take the KC money line plus the three. Oh, you like KC on the money line? All right. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. Then, but but we've done kind of a point spread thing, but that's a bonus pick. He's got KC plus pick. three yeah. as as the lock of the week, but he loves KC on the money line uh, as well. All right. Uh, great job. Appreciate it. Uh, we will talk next week before the championship games. All right. Thanks, Kevin. Jay Gruden, everybody, with me two days early this week because, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, I am heading out of town. I will not have a show tomorrow or Friday. I will post the smell test to Twitter either late Friday or on Saturday. And I can tell you right now, there will be plays, and there will be Saturday plays, I'm pretty sure. Uh, What's trending right now is Green Bay and Houston as massive public plays. Uh, And so it's very possible. I'll wait to see how the rest of the week plays out, but it's very more than possible. It's likely that I'll have at least Baltimore and San Francisco, two big favorites. I hate playing favorites, hate playing big favorites, especially in the NFL. But I think both of the number one seeds are going to be contrarian anti-public plays by the time we get to the end of the week. But follow me on Twitter at Kevin Sheehan DC, and I'll post the smell test picks Uh, Friday or Saturday. They'll also be available at theteam980.com. All right, that's it for the rest of the week. I'll be back on Monday. Enjoy the rest of the week and the weekend of football. 
Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.